This morning, like I said, in, in well, I want to be in the third chapter of 1 Peter. I want to just say real quick, I think that when we ended last week, we're going to be going over in a little bit of detail. Uh, you know, some people say, well, what does it mean when you get down to verse 19 and so forth? And, and it's kind of language that say, well, wait a minute, did Jesus go down and... and and preach to the, the spirits in prison. Did he, you know, what, what exactly does that mean? And it's a passage that uh, needs to be looked at and come to a, a rightful conclusion at, because a lot of people have taken that out of, out of context and so forth. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. I'm excited about today because this epistle is, is just simply amazing. Again, coming from the fact of this man... Uh, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament epistles, okay? Two-thirds of the New Testament. And this was, Paul was a man who was a violent aggressor against the church of God, and he was the one that was that was uh, seized, if you will. I like the word seized, and changed and became born again by the risen Lord himself. This man that we're reading, God used him, um, in so many ways, uh, I think of Acts chapter 10, where he uh, opened up the, the God who gave him the keys to open up the door, as you go to the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius. But yet we see him in Acts chapter 2, 1 and 2, on the day of Pentecost, and so forth. Um, we see this, this man who was, was living with Christ for three or so years, saw things that would have probably... Uh, blown any any mortal's mind. Um, listened to him, seeing the irrefutable fact that he was fulfilling the Bible because he was God. And yet we also see a man who, at, at one times, got down to being very, very uh, pointed. He denied his Lord. And I think through this man, we can understand as well the mercy of God. You know, God's bigger than our, uh, our blunders, our denials, our failures, our putting our foot in our mouth, you know, whatever. God is so far above that. God is separate from his creation, yet totally in love with it. And we see it in this man. And God had him... The Spirit moved him to write uh, this incredible letter. Who better to know, if you will, why we must sanctify, set apart, extol, exuberate, lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts before we can aptly defend this faith? You know, uh, this is where we get the word apologetic from. Okay? Um, sanctify the Lord God, verse 15 of chapter 3. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense or an apologetic, if you will, which simply means a logical <coughs> convincing defense of this one and do it with meekness and fear. We cannot give a credible witness in words that will match our life until we sanctify the Lord God or set Him apart. He is just not in addition to your life, as a Christian, He is your life. He is not just someone you, you pay homage to on Wednesdays and Sundays and when you read your Bible. He is the one who is your life. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, Donald Barnhouse used to use an a illustration. He took a piece of paper and a book and he always wore a top coat. And he would say, this piece of paper represents the one who's died with Christ. This book represents Christ, and my top coat represents the Father. 
This one who has died, has his life is now in Jesus Christ, wrapped up in God the Father. And it was a very, uh, of course I never saw it, but I heard it many times. Um, for some of you that have ever had the privilege of, of listening to his uh, exposition of uh, the book of Romans, using it as a point of departure, was well over a year. I've gotten the privilege several years ago to, to listen to that whole thing. And, and uh, a great expositor of the word of God. We need to sanctify the Lord God, set Him apart as holy, as our, He is our life. You know, one of my mentors taught me that, you know, when we become a Christian and we, we come to the cross of Christ, we have died. And this one that we have died with, His life is the one that now lives within us. Are we willing to, to consider ourselves dead? And alive in Christ, we need to, we must. That's the Christian life. It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. We need to set him apart. So I think sometimes it's, it, it maybe it would would relieve a lot of anxiety of people talking to other people about their about their faith. It should be troublesome and it should be hard because if they have not sanctified the Lord Jesus Christ. They are talking about something that is way beyond our scope. We are called the ambassadors for, for, for God. For one who, in the dateless past, if you will, again, I say this a lot, but please let this sink into yours. He spoke, and the universe sprang into existence. We are called to give a defense or a... Uh, Apologetic, and I don't use that word because some of us read a lot. And we know that, you know, we've been a Christian for a long time. What are apologetics and all this? You know, Norman Geisler, people like that are, are big on you. They're apologists. They they read they write books of apologetics. What is that? That's the defense of the Christian faith, and that's exactly what he's saying here. Set God apart in your heart. You're always going to be ready to give an answer on that. You know. He is our life. I've been reminded shortly, I'm not going to say this. I said, I, you know, I used to always say, well, you all know this verse. Well, you know, there's, sometimes we know the words on the printed page, but to know the Word of God is to actually know it, have it effective in our lives. I think the most uh, definitive, if you will, definition of the Christian life is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I like to read it in the extended version of the Benedictine text. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. So therefore, we're always ready to give a defense. We're always ready. It doesn't matter if you're if you're not, you know, if you're not expecting anybody at the door, and all of a sudden, some man, young man, I'm speaking from this experience I had several years, served quite a few years ago, a young man who was who came by himself. They usually come in twos to the door. He was a Joe's witness. Not, a, not five minutes into the conversation, I realized that he wanted to know God. He, was, he really was seeking God. And he thought that the watchtower was the way. He thought that in his New World Translation, John 1.1, that Jesus Christ was a God, was the Word of God. He thought in their translation that they'd taken some, uh, some loose... Uh, translations, and he really believed that Jesus Christ rose as a spirit. And we could go on. I pray for that man to this day. He heard the solid word of God. Are you ready when, when the occasion pops up? Because you know, it's, it's not a, a <laughs> it's not a fit and proper life that we live. Okay, today I'm going to go out and I'm going to go witnessing. 
and I'm going to see 12 people, and I'm going to witness to 12 people today. It's not like that. We are to be ready whenever. And that's even in here. If somebody has a, if somebody walks in here and, and uh, are you ready to give a defense? But more importantly, I challenge you this before we go on today. Have you sanctified the Lord God in your hearts? Is he everything to you? He is your life. You don't live anymore. Your old sinful nature does not live anymore. God does not look on you like he looked on you before you accepted his offer of eternal life. He looked upon you before Christ as a sinner. He looked upon you as one that needed the Savior. He looks upon you now as cleansed. He looks upon you now as his son or daughter. He looks upon you now as your ambassador. So yes, we are different. And that's what's wrong with a lot of marriages today on a lesser scale. And I say lesser scale because that is exactly how it's presented in Ephesians chapter 5. But marriage is a, a type, if you will, or a symbol of what really Christ is in the church. <clears throat> Why marry somebody if you're not going to forsake all others? Why marry somebody if you're going to have a wandering eye? Or different thoughts? Or, how is this? Why marry somebody if you're going to try to change them to how you want them? That's how this Christian professing plastic church is doing to Christ today. They are molding what they want him to be. They're molding the scriptures what they want it to say. We need to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord God Almighty. He's our King. He's the Lord. We will be spending all eternity adoring Him. Following Him. And He calls us to do that now. What a wonderful opportunity to be a spokesman for Him. And what a wonderful day it comes when, when a man or a woman... Uh, is not intimidated and, and shy or, or fearful or, or whatever, but they're, they're anxious. They're full of not anxiety, but they're, they're excited when an opportunity comes. Isn't that a, just a relief? What would you rather be? Oh, I know I should really. Have you ever talked to somebody, were you talking to somebody, and your heart was pounding like crazy? You knew that God wanted you to speak on his behalf? But use excuses. I'm not knowledgeable enough. I don't know enough. What if I don't say the right thing? I can't, or I'm fearful, whatever. But when there comes a day when that opportunity comes, and there's no more of that, because you have sanctified him, the, the day is done. He has proverbially put that ring on my finger, and it's not coming off. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Make that decision now. I just wanted to bring that up. Because I think it's important. It is very important. Because whether because whether we whether we whether we have Jesus Christ being the Lord God Almighty, it doesn't change things. He is the Lord God Almighty doesn't depend on other people's opinions. It depends on facts. See, the Christian life is based on facts, not philosophy, not creeds. Oh yeah, men have creeds, and creeds might be good. But the Christian life is based on facts. God, there is only one God. He spoke and this universe came into existence. All things were made by him. He created all things. Jesus Christ is real. He came into this life. He was attested to as a real man. He lived in the hills of Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. He was a real Israelite. 
He lived a perfect life. I don't think anybody really that I've ever talked to has convicted him of sin. Or at least they won't mention that. He was somebody that went to a horrible death on your and mine's behalf. It was attested to not only by criminals, not only by a Roman centurion that that could probably care less, it was attested to by the fact that even in the law systems, Roman and Jewish, he was illegally tried in two separate systems. We have so much factual evidence that corroborates the Word of God. And yet he rose from the dead and he's coming back. He answered his disciples three questions about this end of the age and it's going exactly as Greg Swapley put it, exactly as it was foretold. It is going that way today. We can't get around it. You can't have any knowledge of the Bible and say this is just coincidence. And I know that he lives because he lives in me. I know myself. I know myself that I was a sinner, that I had an aimless life, that I knew that I was in trouble, that I knew, you know, if I knew I was in trouble with my earthly parents when I did something wrong, I know that I have a problem. And I know that Christ is the remedy Because when I was 22 years old, he changed my life. He didn't give me a philosophy. He gave me a life. He gave me forgiveness of sins. Now I know God. I know him. Can I explain him? Well, I can explain him in the the language that I know him. How well can you explain your God? Do you know he's loving kindness? Do you know he's merciful? Do you know he's tender? Do you know he knows when to reprove and when to praise? Do you know when he when he takes you by the hand and leads you across those turbulent times in life and we could go on? Do you know him? This morning, I want to start with the 18th verse of chapter 3. And we'll start going through this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. One of the things about knowing God and knowing His character is that God was concerned about our lost condition. God wasn't concerned that we needed a moral teacher. God wasn't concerned that we needed better laws and we needed better ethics. We needed to be saved. We were lost. You can't, the prophets speak nothing of the fact that God was so concerned that we needed a moral teacher that he would come down and pave the way. God said, you are lost. Isaiah 59 probably says it the most eloquent, but know this, your sins, your sins have caused separation between you and your God. It's hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Oh, ye come to the waters, you have no money, come by and eat and so forth. Jesus saying, If anyone believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit. But the Spirit had not been given yet, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. So we know this is a changed life he's talking about. Christ came, the just, him, the just. What does just mean? Just means that there is no fault or blemish, or room for accusation. There is no more of sin. There is no marring. In other words, a marring is when something is made like a perfect jar, and it's marred. It's it's actually marred from its perfectionist. There was nothing of that in him. He was perfect. He came as the perfect and the just one, and he lived a perfect life. That's a parable to understand. 
Jesus said in John 8, which of you can convict me of sin? That is an amazing statement. The just for the unjust. Why? So we can be better people? So we can be morally right? So now that I'm religious, so I cleaned up my act? So now I can really do good works and, 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 and get into heaven? No, it's the just, Jesus Christ, for the unjust, you and I, so that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh. No man takes my life from me. He says, I lay down of myself. But you know what? I will take it up again. And he did. His death was absolutely unique, just like the Bible said. He laid his life down of his own accord. He fulfilled the scriptures by three days and three nights being out of that body that was laying in the tomb. And he entered that body again and he was raised from the dead. The Spirit raised him from the dead. Do you know that in our redemption, as we've talked about, that the Trinity, the triune Godhead, is involved in every aspect of our life? Not only of our salvation, but our keeping life here, and we will dwell with this triune God forever. Remember the first chapter of Genesis, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. You know? We know that the Lord Jesus Christ, that everything that was made through Him, nothing was made apart from Him that was made, and so forth. We know that God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You can't get around it. Our God is so consuming. That's what it means to be a new creature in Christ, a creation. You don't see the stars and, and, and the, the moon and the sun. They're not rebellious against God. They do exactly what they do, and they give Him glory. Go to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Why? Because He created them to give Him glory. And He's created you and I for the same reason, that we might come to Him and give Him glory. That's why Peter says earlier that we are to, to shout the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness into light. Christ came that you and I might be new creatures, new creations. Creations that would shout His glory that in the ages to come, and that, that language in, in, uh, in Ephesians, that ages comes means age without end, eternity without end. As time goes on, from here till however long eternity is. I can't fathom that because I have a little finite mind. But all that time that God will be praised, that He has brought something that was dead in sin, alive in Jesus Christ. The just for the unjust, that might bring us to God. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now we start getting into an area where this is wonderful. Let's look at that. Let's look at this uh, in, in amazement. Let me read on here. Verse 19 again. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So it says, verse 19, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. You know, the word of God is so is around somewhere around 385 or so passages with, with the occurrence of spirits. Man, in this context, is never called a spirit. Now, we'll get to this. This is absolutely wonderful. You know, the, spirit, the, the Word of God is like a multifaceted diamond. Angels are called spirits. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 7 and 14. This is kind of a, a recap till we get into this deeper. Look at 2 Peter 2, 4 real quick. Just flip over 2 Peter 2, verse 4. In 2 Peter 2, 4, the apostle says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them to hell, and delivered them in the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. 
and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and so on and so forth. Jude. Jude's an interesting book, or an interesting letter, if you will. In Jude chapter, or verse 6, <laughs> I was caught you, didn't I? In Jude chapter 6. In Jude verse 6 and 7, it says this. Jude says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, this is verse 6, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And as, and as uh, Peter did in his epistle, followed that by speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude does the same thing. So we know that these, these angelic, uh, demonic hosts, if you will, or or some people say that that they're in that vernacular, have sinned. They were so wicked that they came down. God judged them, and God has, has chained them. There are some that were so wicked, I believe, in mercy that they're being chained and they're they're awaiting judgment. Obviously, we know that 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 the demonic activity is going to be uh, more intense as time goes on, but. By whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. We're back in 1 Peter now. Look at verse 20. Who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were being saved, or excuse me, were saved through water. First of all, I want to say as we move to the, the human realm, there is no second chance. Okay, So a popular uh, conception of these passages were that, wait a minute, did, did Jesus go down in, in the midst of his, being, of his death and, and, and his resurrection and preach uh, a second chance? No. Because we know by the, by the totality of the Word of God, death beyond this body... That's, this is the state you're going to be in. Either eternal life with Christ, because of receiving that forgiveness of life, or, or separation for, eternity, for all eternity from Him, and a Christless eternity, because we refused to, to receive that free gift. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, after this the judgment. We also look, I have three points, by the way. This is the first one. I have, I have two other ones. Let's look at the great gulf that was fixed in Luke 16. Okay, to dispel the second chance. Okay, that was in Hades, a, a place that the Bible calls Sheol in the Old Testament, which when we understand, had two compartments. One where the, all the dead went in Sheol, if you will, in the Old Testament, as well as those that were saved. So you move into Hades in the New Testament, you have the, the area of, of Hades where his conscience, torment, and suffering awaiting final judgment, which the rich man was. But you have that compartment, Hades, that was Abraham's bosom, that where all the Old Testament saved Old Testament saints were resting until the time that the Lamb of God in fulfillment would lift that covering and actually pay for their sins, not cover them anymore. They were in the, the, the abode, if you will, of Hades, of Abraham's bosom. This is where Christ went and preached. What did he preach? He did not preach a second chance. If you look at the languages, the language in the Bible conducive with the rest of the Bible, he went down and proclaimed victory to the spirits and the demonic forces in hell. And also to all that were there. And we know from, from Ephesians and elsewhere that he led all those saved saints into paradise. You know, think about that. Jesus went down and proclaimed victory in Hades. Right before he took these Old Testament saints. You know, huh? that is good news. That validates everything. 
So again, my first point was that there's no chance, no second chance. So we know that this passage does not speak of Christ going down and offering a second chance. Okay? Number two, again, he went down in, in the language, the correct understanding of this passage is that he went down and he preached victory over death. And the third that we know that he went and, he, and through the days of Noah that he preached. I believe, as Schofield says, that the Spirit was preaching, or excuse me, that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah in those days. And we know by the, by the uh, account, not only Genesis, but elsewhere, that only eight souls were saved. A lot of demonic forces that I believe that uh, the Bible speaks that were exceedingly wicked were rampant in those times. Which also collaborates the fact that of Jude and Peter and elsewhere that these were so wicked that God has them reserved even now under the chains of darkness for judgment. And I believe that one of the things that Jesus might have been proclaiming as victory is what he said in Revelation 118, I love this. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. You have the King James says, I have the keys of hell and of death. So he has the keys. He's the one that was victor. He's the one, you know, uh, you know, Milton's fire, that, that, you know, his, Milton was a man who wrote a philosophical man, you know, stated the fact that Satan runs hell. That Satan does not run hell. Okay? God has everything reserved under the day of judgment. God has everything. The hell was, was made originally for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire, God is in complete control of. So I hope that kind of brings a little bit out. Some of these are very difficult passages, but the Bible is always its best commentary. Always. Look at verse 20. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited, is of no hope, is of no hope, no hope, no hope, while his eight souls were saved through water. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the flesh, of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, baptism. Wow. Paul says in Romans about baptism, therefore we are buried with him through baptism unto death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should walk in newness of life. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I believe that God raised my Savior, his Son, from the dead. Therefore, through my belief in his word and his son is raised, I have been raised with him. I am associated with him in his death and his resurrection. Wow. Hebrews chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 14, the writer says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offer himself without spot or blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. We cleanse our conscience from dead works because we've been raised to new life with Christ. Wow. Raised to new life. It's a fact. It's a fact in God's eyes that we've been raised with Christ. First Corinthians chapter 12, which is a wonderful passage. 
to understand how this happens. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13, I'll read, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into the body. We get a little bit of understanding. We have baptized in the one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one spirit. We've been baptized. We have been taken from death into life. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 5.24. That's what baptism is. It's an anti-type of saying they were delivered from, from the wickedness and they were saved through baptism unto new life. Has everybody here been baptized? I mean, I would imagine. What a wonderful, wonderful testimony that is. Baptism is an outward sign of what's already taken place. Baptism. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That good conscience is the fact that I have received Christ, my sin bearer, God's answer to my sin, and I believe that God raised him from the dead, and therefore I'm a new creation of Christ. My conscience is clear. I have no defiled conscience now. I come to God. I came to him through his front door, through his own way, through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is pleased with Christ dying for me. I am a new creation of Christ. He rose from the dead. I rose with him. I have a position in the heavenlies with, with uh, Christ. Now he sees me in his beloved son. I have a clear conscience now. That's what it means. To be baptized into the body of Christ. A good conscience toward God. You know, that's why there's so much problem in the world today. That's why there's so many religions. That's why there's, there's so much uh, quote-unquote atheism. Well, you know, if you're going to get down on the atheist, you might want to have sympathy or pity on the agnostic. Because agnosticism says, in a nutshell, that there may be a God, but there may not be a God. You can't prove it, and it's unknowable. See? That is one step closer to atheism. There is no atheist, the Bible would declare, that God has put eternity in the hearts of all men. So as we've talked about uh, in previous times, that we've talked to people and, and about this, what is an atheist? An atheist is simply this, a man or a woman that must forcibly keeping, trying to keep God out of his conscience because he knows if he stops doing so, he will no longer be an atheist. See, he doesn't want to submit to a creator, so he's going he's to make believe that there is no creator. Therefore, there's no responsibility, there's no accountability, and I do things my way. You want to hear a major contradiction? These people that are the leading evolutionists, I'm not going to name names, you all know who they are, leading evolutionists, leading atheists, say, we're an atheist, there is no God, this all happened by chance, and blah, 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 blah. But then at the next breath they'll say, we will not allow a divine foot in the door. Excuse me, what? I, I didn't hear that. In one breath you're saying there is no divine authority. In the next breath you're saying you're not going to allow him is even his foot in the door. A good conscience. A good conscience. I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. Eternal life is mine. I know God. And more importantly, He knows me. And He loves me. And do you know that you and I will never know a time without God from now through eternity? We will never know a time without God, ever. But God says He's angry at the wicked every day. 
The wicked, the, the, the ones apart from God, have a separation because of their sin. But you and I will never know a time without God. That is an astounding statement. A good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I had a Jehovah's Witness asked me one time, how are you so sure? God asks a simple thing from me. That Jesus Christ offers eternal life. He died for your sin. He's the answer to your problem. Come to me through my son. And I did. And as I exercise saving faith, I know that my Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that God was satisfied that Christ died in my place. I am now His. I belong to Him. I do not have to pull up bootstraps anymore. I don't have to rely on my good works anymore. I don't even have to rely on my knowledge anymore. I have to know that Christ died for my sins. He rose bodily from the grave and He ascended to the Father. And the Bible says that He's there for me. How do I know that I'm going to heaven? Because Christ is there. My conscience is clear. I don't have to make up a philosophy about life. Well, you know, I truly believe that once you die, you go into the ground. The other one says, well, you know, I don't really think that. I think that there's really something more. I think that, you know, I did a good, I did, my life was okay, you know. And the other says, you don't know me. My life was terrible. God will never accept me. So he's in doom right there. We have all type of philosophies, all type of defiled consciences. And you know what? Your conscience will dictate on how you live. And nobody has ever lived up to the light of their conscience, the Bible says. Nobody. But you and I have a clean conscience, a good conscience, an answer to God through a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My Savior lives, and He's coming back. Look at verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. That's all power in Jesus' name. Again, my friends, ask yourself this. How, how do I know that God is satisfied with me? How do you know? What makes you different? How are you so certain that God has forgiven you? How do you know that your sins are forgiven? How do you know you're going to be in heaven? How do you know anything about this life? I know God's satisfied because he raised Christ from the dead. A clear conscience is inseparably linked with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only personal association with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection can do that. That's the Bible. That's God's word. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, listen to this. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Wow. That is amazing. I may be simple, but there is nothing in this world that I want to hear than that. Nothing. I want to read a few passages, uh, five passages for you out of the book of Hebrews, that I want to sum up this last part of chapter 3 before we get into chapter 4 real briefly. We've got a few minutes left. Just listen to this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Brethren, that's you and I. That's how we're different. That's how we know that our God lives and that the scriptures are true and that they're his word and that he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. That is once for all settled in heaven. I don't have to do anything to keep being saved. I don't have to do things to prove to God I'm worthy to get through the quote-unquote pearly gates. I hate when people talk about pearly gates and the man upstairs and, and all that. Are you kidding me? That is language. Pearly gates and streets of gold and, and, and so on and so forth to paint a picture of absolute beauty and priceless perfection. Things that are beyond price. Things that, that this world uh, is not worthy of. Things that, that the, the filthy uh, lucre of this world can't even begin to buy. But we've been bought with the shed blood of Christ and, and, and we have a, a conscience cleansed toward God because Christ rose from the dead. All, all things have been made subject through him. All powers. And if you, and if, and if I'll give you something to chew on, you don't have time, but if you really want to get this further, remember when we were in the book of Colossians, we talk about this a lot. You read in Ephesians, excuse me, not Colossians, Ephesians. If you read about the power of God in Ephesians 1, verses 18 and on, how he was raised in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power. I'm looking at Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. And all dominion and every name that is named. He's been raised above everything. Not only his age, but also in that which is to come. In other words, it is preeminent. He is predominant. Then you go and you say, well, that's great. Christ was raised from the dead. He, above all principality and power, he's, he's the predominant one. He's got his rightful place now. He's Lord. But look at chapter 2, verse 6. But he raised us up together to sit with him. We've been raised with Christ all above all principality, all power. And, and that power that works within us forms a humility that, that makes a man so different in Christ. All power in Jesus' name. Wow. Therefore, therefore, 1 Peter 4, <clears throat> since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Remember Paul wrote in Philippians 2, this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality, great deity passage. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a bond servant. And the likeness came in the likeness of men. And he suffered to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul follows up and he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we have died to sin, live any longer in it? Verse 7 he says, for he who has died has been, what? Freed from sin. Folks, Christ is forever done with sin issue. The sin issue is over. Wow, he just hasn't dealt with me yet. Yes, he has. 
That is not biblical to say that Christ just hasn't dealt with that sin in my life yet. He has dealt with all sin forever, once and for all. Now he's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away, the new has come. And the Apostle John says, in him there is no sin. Wow. Verse 2, he says, and we're almost, we're, uh, we're almost done here. This is exciting. That he no longer should live, verse 2, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he died for all, that those who should live no longer for themselves, but him who died for them and rose again. The time to live for ourselves is over. How long is it going to take us to realize that there is nothing in this life that, oh, I've got to experience it. It's going to change my life. We've all experienced everything by now. The only thing I haven't experienced in life is becoming a millionaire. I don't want to be a millionaire because I couldn't handle it. I can tell you that right now. That's a temptation that I don't want to be faced with. I've known everything in life that, that God has seen fit before I realized that life without Christ is death. Life without Christ is transitory. Life without Christ is being hungry one day and definitely starving the next. Life without Christ is not having any spiritual vitality, not having any life at all, but you're a walking dead man. That's what the Bible says. Formerly you who were dead in trespasses and sin, has he quickened. Ephesians 2.1 You were formerly dead in sin. You were walking in sin. You were walking in death. What you thought was joyous in life was death. How deceiving and deluded we were. That's the difference between biblical Christianity and everything else that is out there. It's a reality that we find more and more. And that's another thing. The older we get in Christ, yes, we mature in knowledge. Yes, we grow in knowledge. But we also grow in Him. Verse 3 says, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, reviling, revelries, drinking parties, adulteries. It hits everybody, by the way, folks. This passage here, you might not have been a drunkard. You might not have been uh, an adulterer uh, in, in, uh, in action. You might not have gone around uh, going to drinking party, drinking party. You might not have been in the disco jet set, you know, and, and uh, all that stuff. You might not have went around partying all the time. But let me tell you something. You walked in lust. You lust after money. You lust after things for yourself. You've lusted after things that you thought were good. You had a direction in life and Christ had no part of it. Look at the last part of verse 3. Abominable idolatries. We were all in idol worship before Christ. Because human, human nature is incurably not only religious, but we're idolatrous. We need something. Whether it's our own life, I used to I don't I used to worship me. You know, if you think about it. I used to worship me. You look at these people that work out a lot and then they, they look good, look, they, they go through a mirror and they, you know, I mean they worship themselves. We worship money or we worship our job or our morality. There's some people that worship and say, I'm a good guy, like I did. There is always pointing back to the major idol, and that's us. And anything else you can think of. Verse 4 explains why people think that you're strange, because in regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. The same thing. This is important. By the way, I'll end in verse 7 today, so... 
just just to know this is important. They think it's strange. Jesus said, like we've said many times, that the least they will do to you is separate you from their company. <laughs> You've experienced that. I know I have. I used to relish in the fact that I had a lot of friends. I lost a few friends immediately when I tried to tell them what had happened to me. But I'll tell you what, folks, look at verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, I have two things to say about this, saved and the unsaved, but listen to what Paul says, Romans 14. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Talking about Christians. For it is written, as I said, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account. Those are Christians. But the ones that speak evil of you and separate the company or persecute you because you're not like them anymore and you, you are obedient to God now instead of disobedient, that your sins have been forgiven instead of relishing in your sins and so on and so forth, they're going to give an account to the judge himself. Think about that the next time somebody persecutes you. Or the next time somebody says, you know what, Mike? I just can't handle you anymore, man. What's gotten into you? It used to be fun and we used to have a good time and what not later. We need to look at it as a fact that these people are going to give an account to God himself. Not to me. If you don't like what I do or you don't like what I say, you know, that's not my problem. You're going to have to give an account to God. The saved, we are going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ at what they call the Bema Seat. Great word for a, a, a place, the judgment seat of Christ, where we receive rewards or lack of them. Salvation and rewards are easy to distinguish. Salvation scripture is a present possession. Rewards are something that are going to be attained in the future. Very easy. To distinguish. So as saved people, why are we trying to constantly fix our brother? Now when we see them in sin, absolutely in love, we correct them. But they are gods. They're going to appear before him. They're going to give an account, not with their mate in front of them, not with their pastor in front of them, not with their best friend, alone, individually. We are going to give an account to God. That's the fate, my friend, of you and I. And it's not a woe fate. I anticipate. I want to look for it. I can't wait because I want to serve my Savior because I love Him more than anything else in the world. So when, I, when we stand before Him, we're going to give an account. The unsaved are going to stand before God in the great white throne judgment And they will have their mouth shut because there is nothing to say of their sinful plight. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, to understand this a little bit more, remember that, that upside-down triangle we've always talked about? The whole Word of God rests on every passage or even word that we want to look at. We can see a similar circumstance in 1 Corinthians 5 where the, uh, the man was having incest, you know. And the church was told to excommunicate him, okay, for the fact that he could go out and get buffeted by Satan, by the world, that he would come back and hopefully come back in repentance, which he did. We see that in 2 Corinthians but the Bible says that when he was going, would we be judged in the flesh, but that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes our sin gets to be so entangled that God might choose death or sickness or whatever he does it. But nonetheless, the gospel is preached to those 
who are now dead. Sometimes by persecution or sometimes by whatever means. What happens to the man or the woman that dies before the Lord comes back? That was a question that the Apostle Paul addressed in the Thessalonian epistles. And elsewhere. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And when I, I, I will end in verse 7 here. Thank you for allowing me to go a few minutes because this is very, very important. I think that the, today has just been a blessing um, with what Greg shared and, and the song and everything. These people are going to give an account to him. Again, we won't want to miss the fact that we are going to give an account as well. But we will give an account by the life that we live for the hope of rewards. These unsaved will give an account to him in their unsaved condition. They have no life in them. They are dead in sin and they will perish in their sin forever in the lake of fire, which is called the second death. See, Jesus tasted death for every man. I've received that. He tasted death for me, and I have life from him. But those that refuse to take the fact that he tasted death for them and the free gift, they're still dead in their sin, and they will be banished forever in that lost, dead state. The great white throne judgment, the only thing that Christians, I believe, will do is, is, uh, is witness it. <laughs> we will not be in it. We will not be partakers of it. That is strictly for all the unsaved from beginning of time all the way through will appear, the great and small uh, will appear before God. That is why the King James Version, I believe, one of the reasons why... Uh, they equate Hades or Sheol with hell. You will not see uh, many passages at all. Uh, in fact, I don't think at all using Sheol in the Old Testament or Hades in the New Testament. They use the word hell. Because, brethren, if somebody goes to Hades, they're going to hell. Hades is a place, a fearful place that we that, that, that those that are dead there anticipate and I don't mean joyfully anticipating, there's a coming day when they will stand before the judge himself. There's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Let's look at verse 7 and end here. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Jesus said an amazing thing in Mark 13, Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. You do not know when your Lord cometh. Brother, I just have this to say about this, okay? Followers of Jesus Christ should always conduct their lives with seriousness, watchfulness, and prayer. We do not know the day or hour when our blessed Lord will come. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious. The biblical connotation is that the more serious we are about Christ and heavenly things, the more joyous we will be. It's not the opposite. I think some of us, I know I have, have been told, you know, just lighten up a little bit, will you? God wants you to, you know, have a good life. And he wants you to just, you know, no. We so hear in tears the Bible says, but we will reap with everlasting joy. Sure, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But the same prop, but the same apostle that said that to his young, his young uh, protege Timothy also said that you know my life, the seriousness of it, the purposeness of it, the direction of it. Is it possible to live with, with the seriousness of Christ and still enjoy the things that he gives? Absolutely. But I am serious about heaven. I'm as serious about talking to people about Christ whenever the opportunity comes. 
I'm serious, people, as your pastor and giving you the word of God as obeying him. I want to give it and give it rightfully. I want to admonish that you not take it from me, but that you would take what you hear from here and go back and check it out with the scripture because that's where spiritual growth happens. That's the reason for the church and the reason for pastors is that they would feed the word of God and that we would be Bereans and go back and check it out. And that right there is how spiritual vitality builds in your life. And like I've said before, and I'll end with this, with this statement, that is a precedent that happened from the prophets to Jesus himself, from the disciples all the way through. You know these things, you hear these things, you mull them over and you know whether they're right or sometimes, hopefully, if you get mature, mature enough, you can expel the wrong things. But nonetheless, you always go back and look at the Word of God and see if these things are so. You know, those are the only people Paul commended were the brands. He thanked the people of Thessalonica for, for hearing it and honoring it as the Word of God rather than men, which effectively works, but he commended the people of Berea, the Bereans, for doing just that. I'm the mighty apostle Paul. How could somebody question me? I received my revelations from Christ himself. Did he do that? No. He was a humble man, and he commended those from hearing his preaching and going back to the scriptures, because he knew that that is where spiritual vitality and growth really come from. Father, what a privilege it is to, to not only hear your word, but, but allow it to do its work in us. And I pray that this morning we would take what we've heard and we would search the scriptures and just be in rapturous joy that not only you're coming back, but that you so desire that we would know you and that we would live a life of vitality, purpose, and direction. That we lead people to you, not only in word, but indeed in our lifestyle. Thank you for the word of God this morning. Thank you for the food that we have, just for the fellowship that we have uh, with each other. I pray we'd strengthen each other and be a blessing in this, in this church, that we'd go out and be a light to the world, no matter where we are, or people come into our home, or we go out there, wherever and whenever, that we'd sanctify you, Lord Jesus, in our hearts. That we'd always be ready to give an answer. The world is watching Thank you for sharing yourself in your word this morning. And I'm so thankful and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.